People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Mary Catherine McDonald, who goes by MC, is a research professor and life coach who specializes in the psychology and philosophy of trauma. She's been researching, lecturing, and publishing on the neuroscience, psychology, and lived experience of trauma since completing her PhD in 2016. She's published two academic books and many research papers and is the creator of a trauma-based curriculum that serves previously incarcerated folks and veterans. Welcome to Health Gig, Mary Catherine McDonald. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Well, we're thrilled that you're with us and your topic of trauma is so timely, but you have a unique perspective, which I'm excited to talk about today. But first, I wanted to ask you, we ask all our guests to tell us a little bit about you. I know you're an academic and you have a PhD, but maybe tell us a little bit about your family and then how you got into this work. What sparked your interest? I was born in Massachusetts, so I won't go all the way back. (laughs) Um, I'm from the East Coast. I'm living on the West Coast now. I have a big family and had a couple of traumatic losses in my 20s, namely both my parents passed away. And I was actually in grad school. I was doing my master's degree at the time, and I was studying mourning and grief from psychoanalysis and philosophy. So, I mean, talk about timely (laughs) moment to have that academic background and then the personal experience. And then when I got into my PhD program, I wanted to look at the psychological structure of the self. And I kind of fell into the trauma work by accident. There was this big debate going on about whether or not the self is structured narratively. I wanted to say that it was because it seemed so obvious to me. So I wanted to argue against this idea that the self is not narrative. And I picked trauma as sort of a case study because every person that I spoke to or saw and my own personal experience showed that when you have a traumatic experience, your narrative shatters. The story you were telling about yourself, about the world, about your future just absolutely explodes. And so I leaned on trauma for a case study and then realized how much debate was going on in the field of psychology about what trauma was. And that really shocked me. And then I kind of fell down a rabbit hole and moved in. And I've been studying trauma ever since. The title of your book is Unbroken, The Trauma Response is Never Wrong. And your book flips the notion of trauma around. So can you explain a little bit about that? Yes. So if we look at the history of the study of trauma, we have these peaks and valleys where we've studied trauma really intensely, and then it drops off and we don't study it at all. So even though we've been looking at trauma in the field of psychology since the 1800s, we haven't had a sustained study of trauma. And so what that has led to is this very sort of piecemeal definition of what kinds of events count as traumatic and what do not, and a lot of argument in the field. One of the things that is really old is this idea that if you have traumatic symptoms, that this means there's something wrong with you. Meanwhile, in science fields, now that we can actually look at the brain and we know so much more about the stress response system, we can see that the trauma response is adaptive and protective. And so the science knows that trauma and traumatic symptoms that follow a trauma do not mean that you're broken. 
but the rest of the world hasn't caught up with that. So the trauma response is actually a sign of strength. It's not a sign of weakness or disorder. That is the main message that I wanted to get through. Like, let's catch up with what the science has discovered. That makes so much sense because if we had no reactions to trauma, then we'd be broken, right? And we wouldn't survive. Like we wouldn't even get to broken because we wouldn't survive. The trauma response is a set of adaptive responses that is rooted in your biology, your primitive biology, and it's there to keep you safe. So all of these responses in your body and your stress response system get upregulated when you have a substantial threat. And that is, again, designed to keep you alive and make you better able to survive whatever that threat may be. And then the sort of upshot of that is that over time, sometimes that adaptation becomes maladaptive. But again, that doesn't mean you're broken. It means actually your biology is functioning well. So that was the kind of the first idea that I wanted to get across in the book is let's ditch this idea that we are broken if we have trauma, because that's just based on shame and bad science from the late 1800s. We know better. So you say in the book that trauma is unavoidable, but we're built to handle it. There's this debate in, in the field of psychology, and it's kind of still going on because in a clinical space, psychology wants to know which kinds of events are traumatic and which ones are not, because you need to have been exposed to a traumatic stressor in order to have PTSD and get a diagnosis. What's much more useful is to have a definition that's based on the response that happens and the person that it happens to. So if you have an unbearably emotional event and you have no place to put that, you have no help to figure out how to categorize that, then something that was potentially traumatic now is much more likely to become lasting trauma. And so when we define it that way, then I think we see that almost everyone, probably everyone as an adult, I hate saying like reductive things, but almost everyone as an adult has been exposed to something that's overwhelmingly emotional, that they don't have what I call a relational home to help them sort that out. And when you have those two things, then you have something that's potentially traumatic. I don't really think we make it to adulthood without exposure to trauma. We hear a lot about big T's and little T's. Is there a difference? You feel like maybe no. I feel like maybe no. There's a chapter that's called There Is No Such Thing as Big T and Little T Trauma. And the reason for that, psychology is such an interesting medical field because there's so much access without education. Anyone can Google PTSD and they can find anything that a clinician is going to look at, basically. But without the education to scaffold that knowledge, things get really confusing. So the distinction between big T and little t trauma, meaning like legitimate traumas and lesser traumas or however people want to spin it, actually comes from Francine Shapiro, who's the founder of EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And she, in her textbook, was trying to say at the time when she was working and writing this book, they were only looking at singular traumatic events. So you had a car accident and you can't kind of get into the car again, or you had a single assault and you're really struggling with the symptoms of PTSD. And she was saying, you know, I think that when kids deal with bullying for their whole childhood, they end up with some of the symptoms that are similar to PTSD. And I think EMDR would benefit them. She was actually trying to level the playing field. Instead of that being what's happening in the conversation, people pick up this language of big T, little t trauma, and they use it to judge each other and themselves. And it's both scientifically wrong and really harmful. And I think it creates more shame, which is the number one barrier to healing. Let's talk about shame and how that relates to trauma. 
I've been working on a theory that I think that shame is a type of trauma. So my definition of trauma is an unbearable emotional experience that lacks a relational home. When you feel shame, think about even just like, if you just meditate on that word for a second and think about something that you have, that you feel shameful about, you'll start to blush. You'll start to feel isolated. You'll start to think, I can't tell anyone that like you have a response. That response is the stress response system reacting to what it's perceiving as a threat. If you think from an evolutionary biology perspective, the reason that we have shame as an emotion could be that if you do something wrong and you're living in sort of a little group, you might be put on the out group. And if you're in the out group, if you're ostracized, you're going to be less likely to survive. So when we think about shame in our current modern world, where we don't live like that, it's not as threatening, but that doesn't mean that the body isn't interpreting it as threat. Shame is its own kind of trauma. And when you try to heal with shame in any psychological realm, whether you're dealing with PTSD or anxiety or depression or anything, it's like trying to climb a mountain with a car attached to your ankle. It's not going to happen because you have to get to the space of acceptance about what's happening, that your symptoms are real, that they're legitimate, that they don't mean that you are broken, that they can be adapted to. One of the most beautiful things about the trauma response is that it proves to us what is inherent and innate about human existence, which is that we are adapted. And that means we can readapt and then readapt. So when something becomes maladaptive, like a coping mechanism, we can push back and readapt. And that's with our neural pathways, we can change things. Yeah, the brain is malleable. I think in the field of neuroscience, we're kind of moving away from this language about neuroplasticity because plasticity suggests, you know, you mold something and then you can remold it. The more we learn about the brain, which is still very young, our knowledge, I mean, the more we learn that the brain is this dynamic organ that's in relationship to the world and changing all the time. This conversation is changing our neural pathways. Once we know that, we can actually use that knowledge to rewire the brain. It sounds very (laughs) sci-fi, but over time, if you change the way that you're thinking and seeing the world, you can rewire your brain and then stop having those symptoms. Back to your analogy of dragging the car up the mountain and that's shame attached to trauma. Can traumas build on each other? What have you seen? Absolutely. And I think also it's important to note that they don't have to. Let's say you have childhood that is okay, right? So there's nothing sort of that we would label, you know, I'm using quotes like big T trauma. You have like an intact family and things are going on, but your emotional self is not taken care of. So you have sort of planted this seed of, if you think about how that might impact your worldview, you might think I'm isolated. I'm different than everyone. Nobody can handle me. I'm too much, right? You kind of have these seeds planted. And then as an adult, let's say you have a traumatic abusive relationship, then that's going to add insult to injury. And when you try to heal from the adult relationship, it's probable, almost sure, that the stuff from your childhood is going to come in as well. And here's where I see a lot of shame because people will legitimize one trauma in their lives and delegitimize another. So they'll say, well, this relationship was physically abusive and therefore that counts. But I had a roof over my head and my parents didn't get divorced. And so, yeah, maybe there's emotional neglect, but it didn't count. But I do want to say, because there's been this narrative and I've seen this popping up more recently again, that if you have trauma as an adult, then it means there's hidden trauma that you have as a child that hasn't been processed. That is sometimes, but not always true. You can have trauma as an adult and get PTSD 
just from that. It doesn't have to be that you have this whole cascade of trauma that you have to then go rediscover. So that makes me think about this question. Is it important to identify exactly what your trauma is? I imagine you can be triggered and yet you don't know exactly why. Yeah, this whole conversation that we have around triggers is wrong in so many ways. And one of them is that we're always conscious and can connect the dots between the stimulus and the thing that's being triggered. And that's not true, right? Sometimes these things are really buried. You do not have to go rediscover the original source. In fact, sometimes you can't. So traumas that happen before the part of the brain that stores long-term memories is developed are not going to be recovered. You cannot recover those, but that doesn't mean they're not informing your behavior and causing these triggers. The great and hopeful thing about healing from trauma is that once you realize that you have a trigger, you can start from there and work into the future. You don't have to always go delving into the past. It can be helpful, of course, if you do know the source, because then there are certain modalities that work really well. Like EMDR is a great example. If you have a specific concrete memory to work with in that therapy, that's great. That's a great start. You can also do EMDR without it. So it can be helpful, but it's not necessary. So you mentioned memories. Are traumas memories? I wish we had a different word because traumatic memories by nature, neurobiologically, are significantly different than regular memories. So if you think about memories as a file folder, you have this thing in the back of your brain called the hippocampus, which is where your long-term memories are stored. And in each memory file, you have, like if you think about opening a folder, you have a narrative, beginning, middle, and end. You have emotional content, and then you have a set of tags that are meaning, chronology, and whatever. The reason that your brain files everything that way is so that you can find things really quickly that you might need, right? This mushroom is poison. That one is safe. When you have a significantly overwhelming event, you do what neuroscientists call flip your lid. Your brain function completely reprioritizes and you lose access to your prefrontal cortex, which is the rational part of your brain. And you also lose access to the hippocampus, which is that file room. And so what happens is the brain will try to create a memory because it's like, okay, we've got something really dangerous that we're living through. We need to remember it. But instead of this organized file where you have beginning, middle, and end narrative, emotional content, instead of meanings, you just get a disorganized file. And that file can be disorganized in one of a million ways. (laughs) Again, a little sort of trick of your brain is that the hippocampus doesn't like a disorganized file. It doesn't know where to put it. It doesn't know how to categorize it. It doesn't know what it means, except there's danger here. And so every time something comes into your perception that relates to that file, the hippocampus very helpfully tries to throw that file to the front of your mind. So you have the opportunity to reorganize it. Unfortunately, your fear center in your brain also recognizes that thing as danger. And then you are off to the races. Your body is responding as if the event is happening again. And there's no or very little cognitive realization of this, at least in the beginning. So you could be just sitting at your desk or sitting on the couch, you're trying to have a normal day. All of a sudden something happens. You don't even recognize that there has been a trigger and you are literally living in two times at once. You're here in the present and everyone expects you to be, and you're also in this past. All of that is to say that like what we are calling a memory is very, very different than a regular memory where we have this ability to pull out the folder, talk about it, feel some of the feelings and also put it back. And memories are not the most reliable things. You know, when you have an experiment where you have three different people remember one event and it comes out three completely different ways. 
does that factor into trauma when often our memories are not reliable? So memory is really fascinating. If I had all the money in the world, if I won the lottery, the first thing that I would do is drive to Pixar because I want a movie like Inside Out, but just for memory, just for the hippocampus. One of the things that happens with memory is that your file room is not infinitely spacious. You can imagine these little Pixar dudes, like imagine the, the animation. You can't keep everything that you experience. You have to get rid of some things and your brain is going through memory reconsolidation all the time. So while you sleep and while you're not thinking or doing other things, there's these little worker bees in the hippocampus saying, okay, we don't need Spanish class from seventh grade. This thing might've been a dream or it might've happened from fourth grade. Let's just call it one or the other and move on. So when we look back in memory, we sometimes have these really wild discrepancies. And then we immediately pathologize that and think, I'm losing my mind. Something's wrong with me. All this other stuff. I don't remember my childhood. Therefore, there must be some hidden trauma probably what's much more likely is that your brain is kind of jettisoning certain things so that it can make room for new information. The thing though about trauma memories is that they're often more crystal clear than regular memories. Because again, your brain has this vested interest in remembering something that was dangerous and painful. And so it will sort of code that with really strong Sharpie marker, but it's not organized. And so it comes up a lot and it's a very crystal clear, but also it might not make sense in one of many ways. Your book is so hopeful, which is what I like about it. I'm generally an optimist, so I love how your book provides hope for people. And one of the things you say in the book is that no matter what you're struggling with, you're not alone. David Morris, who wrote his book, The Evil Hours, which is his memoir of PTSD and prolonged exposure therapy, it's a beautiful book. He's an amazing writer, says trauma is a truth that tells you a lie, the lie that love is impossible and peace is an illusion. I think I have that almost exactly right. That line runs through my head like three times a day because it's so beautiful and perfect. But I think one of the things, a traumatic experience leaves you, especially when it's unhealed and unintegrated, leaves you in a state of chronic, constant hypervigilance. That hypervigilance is sort of at its foundation and isolating state. If you can think of like, if your main job in any situation is to scan for threat, you're not going to connect or not as deeply. And so there is something that's at the root of trauma and its symptoms that is isolating. And then when you add to that, this societal narrative, this incorrect idea that to have trauma is to be broken and you add another isolation pile on top of already being sort of biologically isolated. So most of the time when I'm working with clients or talk to people, they are shocked to find out that they're not alone in their struggle, that the symptoms that they're having do not mean that they're losing their mind, that there are other people out there who feel exactly as they do. And that is sort of the first stone in the path to healing is the recognition that there are other people out there that you can connect with about this exact thing that is trying to trick you into believing that you can't connect. So trauma is a truth because it tells you that you're vulnerable. We are all vulnerable. And a lot of us live most of our lives pretending and acting as if we're not. That's an illusion. The truth is that we're vulnerable. The lie that trauma tells is that the only way forward is to remain hypervigilant forever. With the pandemic and the Surgeon General writing about loneliness, the epidemic, it's funny, you didn't hear anything about, but it makes so much sense that trauma would keep you isolated and make you feel very lonely. 
Yeah. I mean, think about what our lives in the height of the pandemic was incredibly isolated and lonely because other people were dangerous. That's absolutely traumatic. I fully sign on to this idea that the pandemic was a potential trauma. That doesn't mean that everyone's going to have PTSD. That doesn't mean that everyone is traumatized by it. It depends on a lot of other factors, but the pandemic itself was absolutely a potential trauma. I love what you say in the book that it's never too late to heal. I imagine there are people who have trauma and give up because they don't know what tools to use to cope with it or how to deal with it. How do you come up with that philosophy? It's really interesting because I think that's also true on a biological level. There's kind of a biological giving up that happens in a way when you have become so accustomed to struggling, to feeling hypervigilant, to believing that you can't connect. Those things can become what feels like hardwired, right? That you can't possibly live another way. That is completely false because the brain and therefore the whole system is malleable you really can heal at any time. And I've seen remarkable progress in clients of my own who have had incredible traumas and are in their 60s and 70s and just embarking on the healing process and learning how to let people in and connect and love and recommit to relationship and things like that. It really is never too late. It's not something you have to embark on at age 12 or 20, you can do it at any time because of that malleability. And that is infinitely hopeful. I say all the time, and and I mean this in a hopeful way, but sometimes people are like, geez, that's a hopeful thing. The trauma will wait for you. You don't have to charge into it if it's not the moment for you to integrate it. It will wait. You'll continue having symptoms, which is the bad part, but you can get to it at any time. So in your book, you go through some case studies and you talk about tools that you can use. Can you give us some examples of tools that can help people navigate trauma? I can actually break those up into two buckets. There's two different buckets of tools. You can work on trauma healing from top down and from bottom up. If you go back to the memory file, that's one of the critical things that needs to be sorted. So you have this disorganized memory file. Your hippocampus doesn't like it that way. It's going to keep tossing it front of mind anytime something comes in your perception that reminds it of that folder. Some of the work has to be done on the actual memory file in the brain, right? Top down. And so some of the things you can do that are great there are narrative exercises, working with a therapist to kind of get that folder in order. But there's also some incredible stuff that you can do with your brain, because one of the fundamental things that's going on when you're triggered is that your brain, all of the functions are reprioritizing. As I mentioned before, when you flip your lid, you lose access to your prefrontal cortex. One of the amazing things that we don't often realize and talk about enough is that we can actually manually put our lid back on by doing things like playing Tetris, which is kind of a hilarious example, but it's one of the most well-validated ways of modulating the blood flow and energy circuits in your brain. So if you're playing Tetris, yeah, it's wild. How about Wordle? Wordle can be an example too, (laughs) but I think I can tell you why they study Tetris and not Wordle, which is that it makes a continuous bid on your prefrontal cortex. So if you've never played Tetris, it's this puzzle game where these blocks in different shapes fall down and yeah, you have to like line them up and delete the lines And if you don't delete the lines, the pile gets bigger. And if it gets to the top, you lose. The better you are, the quicker the game happens. So you can't like do something else and play Tetris. You can't think about something else and play Tetris. 
but requires this incredible amount of energy in your prefrontal cortex, which is kind of right behind your eyes, because it's requiring your working memory. Baking is going to do the same thing, playing an instrument, learning a language, taking up a new hobby, drawing, anything that makes a continuous bid on your prefrontal cortex is going to reprioritize that blood flow and energy in your brain. And then over time, the fear center starts going, okay, this is a false alarm. So we can chill with the stress hormones that are coursing through the body because this person's not being chased by a wolf because they wouldn't be playing Tetris if they were. And I mentioned all those other hobbies because that's what we did when the pandemic started. We started baking, baking. we started playing games. Yeah, exactly. Instruments, languages, new hobbies, drawing, all this stuff. And I think that's so beautiful because without knowing it, we were manually reprioritizing the blood flow and electrical activity in our brain. How cool is that? Wow. Um, so that's an example of top-down tool. A bottom-up tool would be something that is going to accomplish the same thing. So you're working to turn off the fear response by giving the brain and the body a different stimulus. And so diaphragmatic breathing, where you breathe into your diaphragm, which is right below your rib cage, also has that same effect. Walking, doing something rhythmic can do the same thing. Yoga, because of the vagus nerve, which we can talk about if you want. But don't have Yeah. To. Talk about the vagus nerve. We've talked about it on the podcast before, but a lot of people don't know about it. It's been having its heyday, which is yes. which is lovely. The vagus nerve is part of the nervous system, and it is critical in the operation of the parasympathetic nerve response, so the rest and digest response. It is named vagus. One of the reasons it's named vagus is for the Latin wandering. It's the largest nerve in your body, and it comes from your brainstem, and it's really actually kind of haunting if you look at a picture of it. It sort of wraps itself around your whole body and touches all of your internal organs that are the ones that operate without your input. Your heart is beating, you're breathing, you're digesting without having to like think about it and doing it manually. The rest and digest response, the parasympathetic nerve response is critical because we need to rest in order to be able to function. The vagus nerve has two spots that it has the most nerve endings. One is in the back of your throat and the other is in front of the diaphragm. So you can actually manually stimulate it. And that is like a light switch turning on the rest and the digest response by chanting creating vibration in the back of your throat. You can do that with gargling, singing, and also breathing into your diaphragm because that pushes against that spot that the vagus nerve has a lot of nerve endings. So it's like you switch the lights. Those are ways that you can bring on the rest response when you're chronically activated. One of the things I wanted to touch on, and you mentioned it earlier, you mentioned the word relational home and how we can heal ourselves by providing. What does that exactly mean? My definition of trauma, I'm adapting from a clinician, Robert Stolero, who's amazing. He has a dual PhD in philosophy and psychology and writes beautifully about sort of the lived experience of trauma. And he says that anytime you have these two things, you have a potential trauma and it's an unbearable emotional experience that lacks a relational home. We talked about it a little bit before. So you have an unbearable experience. And if you think about what that means, if you've had an unbearable experience, which I'm sure any listener who's listening probably can think of at least one, your first impulse is to reach out and find someone who can guide you, relate to you, attune to you. And if you can't get that, either because you have too much shame to reach out or because you can't find that, then what was potentially traumatic has a much more likelihood of becoming lasting trauma. Then the next question that everyone asks is the one that you just did, which is what is a relational home and how do we find one? And the answer sort of has to be a little bit vague because it depends on the situation. You might need a whole bunch of people, a mini army of people 
who relate to your experience in order for you to integrate and heal that. Or you might need one conversation with a friend. It just completely depends. But a relational home is a space where someone can help you bear the unbearable. And so with my college students, they get very flustered. They don't like this term because it has so much vagueness in it. And I ask them, okay, what do you think that it means? And they say, we don't know, we don't know, we don't know. And then I say, okay, the last time you had a friend to have a breakup, what did you do? And they're like, oh, okay, no problem. They have a whole protocol, right? (laughs) First, we go over and we delete the person from the phone. Then we get ice cream. Then we do this. Then I listen to them cry. Then we make a playlist of the sad songs. Then we go out and we have fun. All of that is a relational home. You are meeting someone where they are in their overwhelming experience. You're resonating with that experience. You're validating it, attuning to it, and helping them get through it. And I think we do that all the time. We make it into this impossible clinical thing that can't happen unless you're in a therapy room. And that's just false. We're providing a relational home all the time. One of the things that is from your personal experience is the trauma of loss. And how is trauma from loss different than other traumas? And what are some of the things, because everyone experiences loss in their life. So I think that loss is always potentially traumatic. And I know that's kind of a bold statement and we don't like to think of those two things as the same, but there are some losses that are grieved and recognized and allowed. And so that makes them easier to integrate. But a lot of losses are not grieved appropriately. And part of the reason for that is I think we live in a grief phobic society. So we don't do grieving very well. And so when you have a loss, you're allowed three days of bereavement off of work and people will sort of mention the loss to you like for a week or two, maybe they'll check back in. Or not. But then you're expected or not, right? Yeah. Or they get so freaked out, they can't say anything. And then you're left in it. And the grieving process is infinite. It it doesn't stop. It changes, but it doesn't stop. So I think there's a lot of isolation in our society built into any kind of loss. And I think that one of the things that's true about traumatic experiences in the nature of trauma is that it leaves imprints that change the way you see the world. And I think there are some losses that really shatter your set of beliefs about the world, about what is supposed to happen. When we think about loss, we like to imagine someone who's elderly and dies in their sleep in this very peaceful way that is experienced as a relief for family members. And that is really not often the case. And even when it is, it still kind of rewrites the way you look at the world because a part of what it means to relate to each other is to write ourselves into the future. We assume without even thinking about it, that certain people will be there at milestones in our lifetime. And then we have to encounter those milestones without them. So we carry the grief with us. It's profoundly isolating because we don't do it well as a society. You end the book very beautifully and talk about joy and joy as sort of an anchor, the thing that is there for us. So talk about that, the tiny little joys. Funny story, when I had my first academic teaching job, they nicknamed me Dr. Sunshine because I'm a very (laughs) smiley, sunny person, but I'm always studying grief and suicide and trauma and all these things. So there's a part of me that's sort of rooted in this belief that joy is real and not like this sort of airy thing, but actually an anchor. And I think that I, in my own losses of my parents and my own traumas, I have been consistently really shocked at how grounding experiencing joy is in the process. 
I think we have sort of the calculus wrong when we think, okay, I have a big trauma, therefore I need something really good to happen that's huge, that's going to sort of erase that trauma. I think that's beautifully false because I think what happens is when you're in a moment of grief, the moment I always think of is sort of like, you know, my father died really suddenly on Christmas and six months later, I sort of found myself on the floor of my apartment, just like, what is anything? I can't see the future. This is awful. What just happened? And then I would notice, and this happened like every day (laughs) after work, but I would notice sort of the light streaming in the room and hitting the floor. And I would have this little tiny burst of, no, there's hope. Here's an anchor. Or someone would laugh and I would hear them in the hallway, or I would start to get hungry and think like, oh, I really want takeout from my favorite place around the corner. And those moments were so profoundly grounding that it became my path forward. If you can find tiny little joys every day, no matter how huge and awful the thing is that you're trying to integrate or cope with, you have a reason for living. And I know that sounds dramatic, but I've experienced it dramatically, you know? And I imagine you have to give yourself permission to notice those sparks of joy. Yeah. There's this interesting thing that we do with trauma or grief where we think that in order to heal from it, we have to like hold vigil to it. We have to pull it close. We can't let any other emotion in. And that can actually be really hard because especially in the grieving process, as you start to heal, these things can naturally start to filter in. And then you think, oh, this is a betrayal. I have to keep grieving because that's the only thing I'm allowed to do. I'm not allowed to be happy or notice joy or laugh. And so you kind of have to work against that because those are the things that will sustain you. So you're absolutely right. You have to give yourself permission to let those in. And also the practice of noticing them. I have this practice of this daily tiny little joy practice where it's like, okay, yes, it's a hard week and whatever. It doesn't even have to be trauma. It could be that your heater is out and it's freezing and it's been raining for 42 days and you don't want to go to work and you have a cold and you're not sure if it's COVID and all these things are piling up. But if you sort of have a practice of, noticing these tiny little things. Oh, this cup of tea is just feels so good in my hands. It can kind of rebalance things. And I think that's a miracle. So true to look for the joy. So MC, we love this book and I'm so excited. It's going to come out on March 14th, but that you can pre-order it, which is good news. So I think everyone should pre-order this book because it's so encouraging and it's just great. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast to talk about it. And you are a gift to the world with this work that you've done. So thank you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been so lovely to chat. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well.